1: Good morning, and thanks for joining me for Rise and Crime, your morning caffeine hit all about crime. I'm Mama Jules, and now this tragic update to a decades-long story that was loaded with tragedy that included rape, murder, wrongful conviction, and three more deaths. It was June of 1996 in Idaho Falls, Idaho, and 18-year-old Angie Dodge was doing that thing lots of 18-year-olds crave and look forward to. She had finally gotten permission from her mother to move out on her own, her own big girl place filled with independence. She had just graduated from Idaho Falls High School with honors, where she tutored children in both math and English. Her and her mother, Carol, weren't seeing eye to eye on the house rules. So the solution, move on your own and do your adult things. And how many of us listening went through something like this with our parents? I mean, plenty of us, I'm sure. Well, Angie had been on her own for just three weeks when she visited her mom. Time had maybe healed some of the wounds because during that visit, the mother and daughter patched up some of their differences. The conversation that night ended with Carol telling Angie that she was so glad that Angie was not mad at her anymore. Angie looked at Carol and said, not even in a blue moon, Mom. Carol told East Idaho News that the two were hugging and swaying side to side. She said she whispered to Angie that she would always be her baby and that she loved her. Angie replied with, I still whittle, huh, Mom? It was Angie's form of baby talk that the two would use with each other and so cute and sweet, right? She then told her mother she loved her, and she left to return to her own place. Less than 18 hours later, Carol's world fell apart. On that night, someone entered Angie's apartment, raped her, then stabbed her multiple times, leaving a grisly scene in the very quiet and safe community. Angie's work friends, who were worried because she wouldn't answer her landline phone after not showing for work, well, they quickly acted. Angie wouldn't miss work without calling, so they went straight to her new place and found Angie lying near her bed in her torn nightshirt and half removed sweatpants. The killer had left a treasure trove of information for detectives. The scene was sloppy. There was hair. There was semen and then other DNA among the numerous stab wounds. And so much blood was present that detectives didn't realize her throat was slit until minutes into the investigation. And this investigation was something the Idaho Falls Police Department didn't do every day. This was a quiet place back in 1996 with a population of about 40,000 residents. But DNA testing results helped investigators learn that the DNA all belonged to the same man. They just didn't know who. All of Angie's close friends were questioned, but that led nowhere, and the months just drug on with no answers for the Dodge family or, for that matter, the community. Detectives widened their circle of suspects to casual acquaintances of Angie, and that is when they landed on 20-year-old Christopher Tapp. It had been a year since Angie had been brutally murdered, and investigators just wouldn't let Chris off their list, even though it seemed like quite a stretch to tie Chris to the murder. In total, investigators conducted over 100 hours of interrogation with Chris. And throughout those interviews, Chris was all over the place, contradicting the semi-confessions he was giving and then inconsistency riddled the interviews. Authorities had determined that the DNA found at the scene was not Chris Tapp's, yet they remained unfazed. They expanded their theory of the murder to include that Chris held Angie down while another man raped her. The 100 hours of interrogation did have two consistent attributes, though. First, Chris was interviewed repeatedly without counsel. Second, Detective Jared Furman was present for nearly all of the interviews. He knew Chris from his time serving as a school resource officer, and a sort of like trust bond had already been developed between the two. So you know where this is going. Chris Tapp eventually confessed to aiding in the death of Angie Dodge. He admitted to holding Angie while a man named Benjamin Hobbs raped Angie and then they both killed her. Now, Benjamin was new to the radar for the Idaho Falls Police Department, but they connected the two anyway. All right, this is really complicated, so I'm gonna start breaking it down from the very beginning. So here's how it all went and here are the multiple layers. In January of 1997, Almost exactly one year since Angie's murder, Idaho Falls resident Benjamin Hobbs was arrested in Eli, Nevada on charges of sexual assault. Detectives in Idaho Falls learned of the arrest and they felt the two crime scenes showed similarities, so they gained permission to interview Benjamin. Following the interview, police tied Chris to Benjamin because the two hung in a circle of friends deemed the River Rats. Now, the River Rats were just a bunch of kids who would spend time near the Snake River that runs through Idaho Falls. And Angie, she just happened to live about two miles from the river. Detectives acted quickly. They sent Benjamin's DNA away for testing, and two days later, they honed in on Chris. Detectives initially interviewed Chris without a lawyer, and then they let him leave. Three days later, he was interviewed again, without a lawyer. And when he left that interrogation, police had scheduled another interview with Chris for the next day. Well, Chris's mother, Vera, became concerned, and she hired a lawyer, which meant Chris was a no-show for that scheduled third meeting. But undeterred, police went to Chris's home, where Chris's mother told investigators that Chris would come to the police station in three days and that he would be accompanied by his lawyer. Well, detectives left. They established an arrest warrant and they returned hours later to bring Chris to the county jail, charged with being an accessory to a felony. And according to the Innocence Project, in the very first interview, Chris said neither he nor Benjamin were involved in Dodge's death and that he knew nothing about it. Then at the second interview on January 10th, Chris said that Benjamin had killed Angie and he had asked him to provide an alibi for him. Well, then on the third interview on January 15th, his story changed again. And he said that he had been with Benjamin when Benjamin killed Angie. Now this time he supplied a supposed motive, he said Benjamin was angry at Angie for trying to break up his marriage. Now, most of the interviews were recorded and Chris's attorney watched on a monitor from a separate room. Then on January 15th and the 17th, TAP entered into a series of immunity agreements with prosecutors. Now, under those terms of those agreements, TAP had to provide truthful information about the crime. And then, in return, he would only be charged with and allowed to plead guilty to aiding and abetting an aggravated battery. So that's a much less severe charge than murder. But two things are going wrong here. His attorney is advising him in a way that most legal experts would disagree with. And the detectives, well, they're misleading Chris. And here's where the detective strategies really go off the rails. Chris was interviewed on January 18th but detectives are backed into a corner. They got a big problem. DNA tests had come back and excluded Benjamin and Chris as the source of the semen found on Dodge's body and clothes. So there's no pause that's employed here. No, maybe we should re-examine our interviewing techniques. Instead, the police suggest a fix and offer up the idea that a friend of Chris and Benjamin's named Jeremy Sargis was also involved. Now, with this new redirection by detectives, Chris changed his story again and now said that Benjamin and Jeremy raped and killed Angie. Then on January 27th, the DNA tests on Jeremy came back. They were negative. He's not the supplier of the DNA evidence either. This is strike three for the detectives. The DNA isn't Jeremy's, it isn't Benjamin's, and it isn't Chris's, but they just keep going. And detectives also verify that Jeremy's alibi seems to be rock solid. So two days later, prosecutors in anger void Chris's immunity agreement based on the concept that Chris had been untruthful. And it's here where you're probably saying, of course he's been untruthful. The detectives are feeding him the information and he doesn't know what's true at this point. And you guys, you might be right, but it gets even worse. In an attempt to push the confession to a further place, Chris was taken to the crime scene and his attorney declined to go with Chris. After the visit, Chris changed his story again saying he had held Angie down during the rape and stabbing. He then claimed Benjamin was still there but Jeremy was no longer present. Remember, Jeremy can't be at the scene. His alibi is solid And Chris would only know the alibi was solid because detectives had revealed that to Chris. In the new confession, Jeremy is replaced by a friend of Benjamin's named Mike, whom Chris says he doesn't even know. And it just keeps going. On January 30th, Chris takes his fifth polygraph test. During the questioning, police tell him that he could possibly get a more lenient sentence if he claims he had been in fear of his life after witnessing the attack on Angie. Well, eventually, Chris said he cut Angie across the breast, joining the assault because Benjamin threatened to kill him. Now, misleading Chris again, the police tell Chris he passed the polygraph test. But they then note on his report that Chris was deceptive in his answer about participating in the crime. Then finally, on February 3rd, Chris was charged with first-degree murder with rape and with the use of a deadly weapon in the commission of a felony, which was a sentencing enhancement, it makes this even worse for him. Benjamin, who was convicted of the Nevada assault, was never charged in Angie's death. All right, it took more than a year for Chris to reach a courtroom in May of 1998. In multiple motions, Chris's attorney tried to get the confessions suppressed by arguing that Jared Furman and the other detectives had coerced them with questionable techniques. But Judge Ted Wood left a vast majority of the statements to police available to be used as evidence. Now, those police recordings and statements were truly a majority of the trial. During the trial, it was revealed that in the first interviews with Chris, It was clear that police were focused on Benjamin as the suspect, and they just wanted Chris to implicate his casual friend. Detectives falsely had told Chris that Benjamin had already placed Chris at the crime scene and that they could help Chris if he cooperated. Chris said he would help if he could, but he didn't know anything. He was just a, quote, scared little man. But then, in later interviews, under pressure from the detectives, Chris's involvement would steadily increase. And Chris eventually said that he helped hold down Angie while Benjamin and the third man raped and stabbed her. Now, during the interviews, he was threatened with the death penalty and was told that he couldn't remember what he had done because he had repressed those memories of his brutal actions. All right, in the trial, Detective Furman, under oath, testified that Chris knew what Angie was wearing before he was shown crime scene photos. But a later examination of all the polygraph and confession videos showed Chris did not mention the clothing until after seeing the photos. Now, also during the trial, Chris did not testify, but the defense did provide a witness who said Chris was with a woman who wasn't his girlfriend on the night of the murder. The witness said she could remember this because Chris's girlfriend, caught the two together the following morning and it had created a bit of a dust up in the friend circle, but the state called a witness that said the alibi dates were wrong. Now the trial lasted nearly two weeks and a jury of nine women and three men convicted Chris on first degree murder, rape and use of a deadly weapon in the commission of a felony. He was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum sentence of 40 years. Now, If this podcast existed in 1998, this would be the end of it. I would have reported the trial, and we would have moved on. But that wasn't the end for Chris or for Angie's mother, Carol. Over the next 20 years, Chris fought his conviction through a series of appeals. His attorneys claimed that the voiding of the immunity agreement, as well as Chris's diminished mental capacity, and also the less-than-stellar effectiveness of his attorneys, meant he should have a new trial all of his appeals were denied and during those years carol is begging the courts and the local detectives to find the real killer of her daughter carol had been helping chris's attorney and also paying for her own investigations to keep shining a light on her daughter's murder that she felt was not solved during that time carol would often vocalize her frustrations and hopes to her daughter who had died. She said at times she would feel Angie encouraging her and telling her to keep going. Her dogged approach led one of the nation's leading experts in false confessions to review Chris's police interrogation tapes. In 2014, that expert found that Chris's confession was coerced and produced through deceit and pressure. He also found that detectives enhanced the confession by supplying Chris with sufficient details to lend credibility to what he was saying. Okay, during all of that time, also in 2007, the Innocence Project became involved in Chris's case. They discovered that hairs from the crime scene had never been tested. They had only been examined visually during that time. Now, Idaho law would possibly create a roadblock here for the Innocence Project. The law at that time stated that DNA testing must be requested in appeals within a year of the conviction. That is such a short time frame. But the 2007 Police Department is not the 1996 Police Department. Idaho Falls had grown, and with growth, changes had occurred. And instead of the Innocence Project being shut down by the Idaho law, the Police Department requested the testing, and that was perfectly legal. And then the prosecutor's office, led by Danny Clark, became involved. The FBI testing concluded that the hair did not belong to Chris and that it matched the DNA from the semen evidence at the scene. So armed with this new information, the Innocence Project began working with the Idaho Falls Police Department to use forensic genealogy to determine who the semen belonged to. So I need you to think like Golden State Killer and how they found him. Except this was before that time. This was so cutting edge. Well, in March of 2017, after reviewing the mounds of evidence that the Innocence Project had accumulated, Bonneville County reached an agreement with Chris's attorneys. His rape conviction was vacated simply because it wasn't his semen. And then the sentence for his murder was reduced to time served. He was released from prison and was photographed with Carol Dodge, hand in hand, raised in the air on the day of his release. Make sure you check out that photo on our social media platforms. You guys, Carol's face, it's full of joy that she could help make this one part of her daughter's story correct. But remember, there's still a killer out there in 2017 and all the forces working to release Chris from prison now turned their efforts to finding Angie's true killer. Using Parabon Labs, the semen DNA was submitted to be compared to thousands and thousands of DNA samples of people who were probably just looking to understand their own genetic family tree. Now, from this submission, six persons of interest were generated who had connections to Idaho Falls. All six were eliminated. But then, a seventh person was distantly found to be connected to the DNA sample, And this appeared very promising. Back in 1996, a man named Brian Drips lived across the street from Angie. All right, he was questioned in those very first days of the investigation. But his information was shelved when investigators started looking into Angie's extended friend circle. And the Idaho Falls Police Department built a team to follow Brian Dripps, who now lived across the state of Idaho near the capital of Boise in a city called Caldwell. After several days of surveillance, Brian discarded a cigarette butt that police gathered and tested for DNA. Parabon Labs did that testing and found that Brian was the source of the DNA found at Angie's murder scene. Police surrounded Brian as he visited a convenience store and they were able to bring him into custody without incident. On May 15th of 2019, Brian confessed to the murder of Angie Dodge. He said he acted alone, and he didn't even know who Chris Tapp was prior to his conviction. He said he had noticed the pretty blonde that had moved in across the street. On the night of the murder, he said he was high on cocaine and had also been drinking. Brian grabbed his pocket knife and walked across the street to Angie's apartment. After entering the home, he found Angie sleeping. He said he only intended to rape her, but that things got out of his control, and he didn't mean to murder her. Ryan pled guilty to murder. He is currently serving a life sentence in the Boise prison and he is now 57 years old. It took 23 years to find the truly guilty man who murdered Angie. And it took 20 years from Christopher Tapp's life because he was wrongfully imprisoned. Now for the Innocence Project, this was a huge victory. This case was the first in the world to use genetic genealogy. And here's where the update to the case comes into play. Chris Tapp has spent the last six years rebuilding his life after losing those 20 years in prison. Two months after Brian Drips confessed to the murder, Chris Tapp was exonerated for the murder. He had only previously been exonerated for the rape charge. Now everything was removed from his record. But how do you get 20 years back? And what do authorities owe Chris Tapp? Well, Chris went on to sue the city of Idaho Falls and the Idaho Falls Police Department And then after some legal wrangling, the city finally settled the suit in June of last year and awarded Chris $11.7 million. In a statement provided by his attorneys, Chris said that no dollar amount could ever make up for the 20 years he spent in prison for crimes he did not commit. But he said the settlement would help him move forward in life. Now, the city's mayor, Rebecca Casper, also released a statement. It read, please accept this sincere apology to you and to your mother, Mrs. Tapp, for the city's role in your wrongful conviction and subsequent incarceration, as well as the harm and damages that you and your family have endured over these many years. We at the City of Idaho Falls hope that the resolution of your civil case and this sincere expression of an apology help bring healing and closure to both Mrs. Tapp and to you. In addition to the settlement, the city pledges to review its policies, procedures, and training, especially related to custodial interrogations, and to revise them as needed to prevent any reoccurrence of what happened in your case. Now, the Idaho legislature also passed a law, in part due to Chris Tapp's case, that any wrongfully convicted person will receive $62,000 for every year that the person is wrongfully imprisoned. Now, that means Chris received over $1.2 million from the state. One month before the settlement with the city, Detective Jared Furman died from complications of Alzheimer's. During his life, he had served as mayor of Idaho Falls from 2006 to 2012. He left the position after being diagnosed with mild cognitive decline. And during his 20 years in prison, Chris had done what many men who are convicted of crimes do. He developed relationships with women who would correspond with him. And one in particular had blossomed for Chris. He had committed himself to Lori Hollinsworth from Lebanon, Tennessee. He had told the post-register that he planned to get out of prison and help Lori with raising her two young daughters. But just 14 months before Chris was released, Lori died in a single vehicle crash in Tennessee. Her two daughters were in the car with her, but both girls survived the accident after extended stays in the ICU. Police reports indicated that Lori was driving at a high rate of speed. Then, after Chris was released from prison, he married Stacy Goodwin. I had a chance to interview the two shortly after Chris was released. The interview was going longer than we had expected, and Chris insisted that we end the interview because he was taking Stacy's kids from a previous marriage swimming, and he didn't want to disappoint them. The two had built a new home near Idaho Falls following the settlement with the state. And Stacy, she had also purchased a brand new Chevrolet Corvette. Well, this year, the two hit some rocky times and they had began divorce proceedings when Stacy, while driving home late one evening in August, rolled her new car. Again, accelerated speed and a tight corner contributed to the single vehicle crash. 41-year-old Stacy died at the scene. They had four years of freedom together before Stacy's life was ended. And I feel like I need to prepare you that the sadness is not over. Not even three months after Stacy's death, Chris was traveling in Las Vegas and he slipped and hit his head. Seven days after suffering the head trauma, Chris Tapp died in a Las Vegas hospital at the age of 47. Now Chris experienced 27 years of freedom and 20 years of imprisonment. Chris had spent the last few months of his life traveling and speaking about wrongful convictions. He is survived by his mother, Vera, who took out a second mortgage during Chris's imprisonment just in order to pay for his appeals. She also worked two jobs to provide money in Chris's commissary account at the state prison. And like I said before, I had interviewed Chris a few different times since his release. He was nothing but kind. He knew he deserved justice and he didn't apologize for asking the city of Idaho Falls to pay for what they had done to him. But he also desired to live a real life, an adult life that had been robbed from him. The misfortunes that others face make me so incredibly grateful for the blessings in my life. And what an appropriate story for this Thanksgiving week. Be grateful for the blessings in your life. Well, that's your Monday episode of Rise in Crime. Happy Thanksgiving. Rise in Crime is also available ad-free on Apple subscriptions and Patreon. And we'll be taking the Thanksgiving holiday off, so you can join me again on Monday for more morning crime news. I'm Mama Jules, and keep safe out there.
0: Our bodies come in different shapes and sizes, so doesn't it make sense that our weight loss plans should too?